Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Caroline, for uh, leading us in that uh, very meaningful song. Every time we say those words, uh, find myself here on my knees again. I'm just, I'm just moved by that. Wasn't it great to see Laura on the bass? Uh, first time for for her. I loved uh, I loved that, and it's great to see Robinson Strickland uh, able to to be on the team again as well. Just thank you for your care uh, and leadership uh, for us. Uh, this morning came in bright and early, and it was snowing. It's a little bit irritating, and I, I hate that because I don't know what decision to make. And at 8:04, nobody was here. None of you were here at 8.04. And I was like, I made the wrong decision. And then, look, here you are. And so I, I'm thankful for that. And I'm especially thankful for our, our deacons. You know, since that big snow on Wednesday night into, into Thursday, um, we have had uh, deacons uh, on our tractor almost nonstop, literally eight hours a day, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They were here until 7 o'clock last night um, preparing uh, things for us. And then it came in and there was a little bit more snow. Um, but, you know, Jeff Brooks was, uh, I think he's uh, lived in that uh, uh, in, in, in the tractor, uh, Jay Johnson, Bill Arnett, Kip Turner, Landon Patterson, Jason Sutherland. I hate to say those, hate to say names for fear of, of missing one, but um, not, not to mention the, the guys on staff that have been working tirelessly, endlessly to prepare us, uh, prepare for us to be able to be here today. And I am thankful for them. Would you show them our appreciation? I don't know if any of them are even in here. Uh, yep, Jeff is. Thank you, Jeff. You, did, you, did you log any hours? Do you know how many hours you were in the tractor? Okay, a lot of hours. Thank you for that. And Seth, who came up and did our announcements. But, but by the way, he is our, our youth associate and uh, been with us, as he says, for just over a, a year at, with Becca, his wife, who is pregnant. And uh, we're excited about that. And he's also a video guy. And he's the one that put that, that video that we did for the, you know, with Michael, uh, talent, sharpening pencils. That, that was Seth who did that, and so that was that was kind of cool. So I'm just kind of proud. Of, I'm just a proud Papa today uh, for the team uh, and for the church that we have here. You know, I suppose there are a number of ways. Speaking of all that has uh, transpired, the, the, all the work that has been done, I suppose there are a number of ways to get people to do what you want them to do. I thought about this this, uh, this week, given our text, and I came up with the following. And as we go through the list, I want you to think about it. Which is your default? How do you get people to do what you want them to do? Uh, number one, and you can see that I don't know why it does. Every once in a while it does that. They're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to see all of those. But first uh, is you could command. Uh, if you are in a position of authority, a boss, a parent, a teacher, you could simply say, do this uh, because I said so. But if you're not in charge, you may have to resort to other more creative methods. So second, you could either plead or beg. I, I can't command you, but will you please do this for me? You may want to sweeten the pot, however, so you could resort to a bribe. If you do this for me, I will do this for you. Or you could next threaten or coerce. Uh, do this because if you don't, I will do this and you're not going to like it. Or next, you may try to shame someone into action. You should do this because it's rather shameful or embarrassing if you don't. Or next, you could try flattery. You should do this because huh, I don't know anyone else who can. I mean, you're simply the best at this. Why don't you do this? 
Now, uh, as we're talking about flattery, this has nothing to do with, well, anything. But as I searched the web this week for flattery, I found a site designed by the University of South Wales called Automatic Flattery. You may want to write that down. Automatic flattery. When you first go to the site, a little box pops up. You can see that. And it asks for your name. So I typed in Scott. Then I hit enter. Then the little box told me, what a beautiful name, Scott. <laughs> I thought, that's kind of cool. So I hit OK. Then it told me, Scott, you are fabulous. I was kind of liking this, so I clicked OK again. And the box then told me, Scott, you are one of those talented people we know. I thought, well, you don't really know me, but I'm kind of liking this. Uh, but I started to get a little embarrassed, so I checked the little box, prevent this page from creating additional dialogue, and I hit OK. And then the site told me repeatedly that I was fabulous and that they appreciated me for who I was. So write that down, automatic flattery. Uh, they then asked me uh, for my bank account information. How could I refuse? <laughs> Actually, I kind of went back into it and hit, uh, I kept hitting OK instead of, uh, and they told me that there were lots of people who loved me, uh, that I was smart, that I was beautiful, uh, and uh, that, that people uh, enjoyed working with me. And so I'm going to ask the elders for a raise. Okay. All that aside, the that leads to the next method. You could manipulate, somehow make it like it's in their best interest to act on your behalf, which leads to the final way, at least that I could come up with, perhaps you could come up with others. You could just encourage action. And let me be clear, this last one is different from pleading, bribing, threatening, sh uh, shaming, flattering, and manipulating. It is encouraging people based on your confidence in them. I I I'm not necessarily assigning a moral value to the rest of them. I, I just want you to think about these ways that you can encourage people to do what you want them to do. And I thought about these because in our study of Philemon, Paul is trying to get Philemon to do something, and it's something really, really, really big. And as we read the text today, it may look like some of these that were on the screen. But it's my premise that he doesn't use any of those first seven that were on the list, although he could have used the first one. He could have said, I'm an apostle, so do this. But rather, he encourages Philemon to certain action based on his confidence in Philemon, or more rightly, because of who Philemon was and their mutual relationship in Christ. Because I have been saying it this way, that relationship in Jesus transforms or it revolutionizes relationships. So, I'm going to suggest today that because of our great love for each other, this is, this is what Paul talks about, because of our great love for each other, we ought to be able to encourage each other to right behavior and then hold each other accountable to that. We ought to be able to use the last on that list of ways to get people to do what we want them to do. Or, or, or better said, to get them to do what by the grace of Christ, they should do. We know that Paul is writing this personal letter to Philemon, the only such letter in all of his 13 letters. 
shortest letter, and therefore it is often overlooked. Often overlooked. In fact, I got to tell you, I thought I would go to this week. I don't always do this, but I thought I would go to desiringgod.org, which is John Piper's website, to review his sermons on Philemon. You see, his sermons um, uh, on that site go all the way back to 1980, 34 years of great sermons, and not one on the book of Philemon. It went from Titus to Hebrews. He, he skipped it. I'm going to write him an email, express, express my disappointment, and offer for him to use my sermons on his site. <laughs> you see, this often overlooked book um, contains, I think, life-changing truth. Now, now, I have referenced the purpose of the book over the past couple of weeks. But really, at this point in our study, if we were just reading the letter, hearing it for the first time, we would not know at this point why Paul wrote it. <laughs> All we would know at this point is we look at it, it's, it's a short letter. It's only 25 verses. It's written primarily to Philemon. We know now that Philemon lives in Colossae, and in fact, the church meets in his house. Paul has shared his usual thanksgiving and, and prayer for Philemon, but, but we're, we're paying careful attention, and we notice he, he makes a subtle shift. He thanks God for Philemon's Love and faith, that's rather unusual. He usually is thankful for faith and love in that order. But with this guy, he's thankful for his love and, and faith. And I suggested last week that Paul is going to encourage, not command, not beg, not bribe, not threaten, not shame, not flatter, not manipulate, but he is going to encourage Philemon to do something based on love. But, but at this point, we don't really know what that big something is. So let's read the text and see if we can get some idea of it. Philemon, verses 8 to 16, this morning. Therefore, Philemon, though I have enough confidence in, order in Christ to order you, I, I could command you to do what is proper, I uh, you ought to do this. I could shame you in, into this. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal. Uh, that word is encourage you. Since, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you, again, same word, for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. No, well, finally, we know what this is about. He's, well, he wants to talk about this Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. And at this point, Philemon gets ready to stand up and look around. Where is the guy? I wish to keep him with me so, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion. That's just, I'm, not, you know, I'm not commanding you, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh 
and in the Lord. Finally, finally we get some idea of what this letter is about. It's about this, it's about this guy, this, well, this slave named Onesimus. But, he, but even now, Paul hasn't said exactly what he wants Philemon to do. He says, I appeal to you, and, and, and really, again, that word is, I come alongside and I want to encourage you concerning Onesimus. But he doesn't say what he wants until verse 17, which is actually the first, well, I'll use the word command because it's in the imperative. The first imperative in the letter is not till verse 17, which we'll get to later. But for now, I want you to understand that this is a masterpiece of encouragement. Paul is not blowing smoke, all right? He's not using flattery or manipulation. He is using encouragement in Christ to prompt Philemon to do what he, in fact, should do. This prompting, this encouragement is based on truth. We remember the outline of the book, the letter... Um, opening and, and salutation, Paul's thanksgiving and prayer. And, and then this morning we get to the beginning of Paul's plea for Onesimus. And then we'll get to the letter closing. We've made our way at this point through the first two sections. So we get ready to jump into the body of the letter where we find the purpose of the letter is this plea for Onesimus. And that plea can be broken down into two um, significant parts. Uh, the, the, the first is this plea based on Paul's relationship with Onesimus. That's what I just read. And then next time, Paul's, uh, there's this plea based on his relationship with Philemon. Don't miss that he is making this appeal based on this three-way relationship. This three-way, this kind of triangular relationship. We're going to come back to that. But, but, but for now, we're going to look at Paul's relationship with Onesimus as he lays the groundwork um, for this request of well, what he's finally going to ask Philemon to do. Now, at this point, we have to ask and answer that very sticky question, who is Onesimus? I mean, it's clear from the passage that Onesimus is a slave. And it's clear that Paul is sending him back to his master, Philemon. Now, there are three distinct possibilities as to how Onesimus ended up in Rome with Paul. Okay? First, is Philemon sent Onesimus to Paul. Let me make sure you get that. That Philemon, the master, sent the slave Onesimus to Paul to serve him. So, so Onesimus had shown up at, at Philemon's request, but then he'd, he'd somehow perhaps stayed too long. Paul's finally sending him back, and he's with an explanation and perhaps an implied apo apology. That's, that's one possibility. Second is Onesimus was a runaway slave. He, he ran to Rome to lose himself in the masses of people and somehow accidentally or more likely sovereignly ran, came into contact with Paul who then led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And so at this point, Paul was sending this runaway slave back to Master Philemon. Third, somewhat related to the second one, is Onesimus ran away and intentionally looked Paul up. Okay? He didn't just show up at, at Philemon's house, under house arrest, accidentally. 
You see, the law said if you felt like you were an abused slave, you could do one of two things. You could run to a temple and ask for the priest to intercede for you. And Paul's obviously a religious figure, right? And so so he could have he heard his name around the homestead, and, and so he could have run to Paul asking for religious relief. Or you could, if you wanted, if you felt like you were an abused slave, you could run to some mediator, typically a friend of the master, and, and, you, and you would run to this mediator seeking to reconcile the relationship, but to, but, but to make things right. And if the mediator is not unable to do that, then the mediator then sells the slave and sends the money back to the master. So those are the three r- very real possibilities. And we're not really sure which one is the case here. The second one has been uh, traditionally held th- through the centuries. That, that Onesimus ran away and circumstantially ran into Paul. I'm not sure which one it is. I'm not sure in the end that it really matters. What we do know is that Onesimus was Philemon's slave, and somehow he wound up in Rome with Paul, and Paul led him to faith in Christ. We also know that at this point, Onesimus should not be in Rome, at least from a legal standpoint, that he should be back in Colossae. Runaway slaves were to be sent back. And so Paul is sending Onesimus back to his master, which again begs that sticky question, why? Why why would you do that, Paul? Why was Christianity and the Bible seemingly okay with this concept of slavery? It seems rather wrong to us. Why does the Bible regulate slavery and not, why does it not seek to abolish the slave trade and emancipate slaves? Those are, those are very great questions, and we spent a lot of time discussing them when we went through the household codes in Ephesians 5 and 6, and then in Colossians chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4. So let me just summarize um, as follows very quickly. First, we have to remember that slavery in the Roman Empire was quite different than slavery in our antebellum or pre-Civil War South. Second... We have to remember that it is estimated that as much as one-third of the population of the Roman Empire uh, were slaves. One-third. As many as 60 million slaves in the empire. Third, to call then for the emancipation of slaves would have wreaked havoc in in the empire. It could have caused a civil war. It could have brought about economic collapse. Which leads to the fourth thing. To call um, for the overt emancipation of slaves would have put this very fledgling and new movement called the way or Christianity, it would have put it in greater jeopardy than it already was. Now let me stop right there for just a moment. Because I had to grapple with that one. Everybody talks about this. Everyone says, well, you know, if Paul and other writers of Scripture would have called for the emancipation of slaves, that would have caused a lot of that would have caused a lot of problem. That seems to me like that argument is, well, we, 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 we can't do what's right because of potential consequences. You understand that? Can I suggest to you this morning that it is always right to do right and allow God to deal with the consequences? So, 
uh, I'm going to avoid the, temp- the, the rather significant temptation to kind of go off on that. But sometimes we choose to do wrong so that good may res- result, or we choose not to do right so that, in our estimation, evil will not result. Okay? Can I suggest to you that it is always right to do right and allow God to deal with the consequences? Because if we choose to do wrong so that good may result, because we're concerned about the consequences, we choose not to do right, or we choose to do wrong, then we're saying, God, we know you're really, really big, but we're not sure you can handle the consequences of our doing right. This is not a right thing. However, having said that, Uh, There is this idea that to overtly, to overtly address the slave issue would have put it in greater jeopardy, which leads to the fifth thing. Slaves were not necessarily treated cruelly. Yes, some were, but not necessarily. The institution of slavery, now I'm always hesitant to say this, actually provided a way of care and even survival for many people. You see, at this time, many slaves were well cared for. It was the master's responsibility to care for the slaves, which leads to the sixth thing. As a result, many slaves were better off remaining as slaves than gaining freedom. You see, if you gained freedom, there was nobody to take care of you anymore. And if you had 60 million people, one-third of the population suddenly free, that would have been a huge issue. In fact, it already was such an issue. There were so many freed slaves running around with no work to do that a decree was passed by the emperor, you can't stop doing that. Stop freeing the slaves until they're 30 years of age. This was an issue. Many of them found better care in the institution than they did in freedom. Which leads to the last thing that I'll say. The Bible's regulation of slavery is not to be seen as an endorsement for the institution. It simply regulated the institution in a broken world. I want to be clear. The Bible does not condone slavery. It simply regulates it. It never ever gives a theological justification for it as if it were the right thing to do. And I want to be clear, it is Christianity that eventually brought the downfall of slavery in Europe and in the New World, okay? So I'm going to say about that at at this point. If you want more, you can go back to iTunes, listen to a podcast on Colossians 3, 22 to 25. That was where I addressed it most recently and more, more fully. Besides all of that, I will say again, this letter makes it clear that Christianity revolutionizes relationships. Even this master-slave relationship. It, it, It may seem that abolition and freedom were distant from Paul's thoughts. It may seem that way, and in fact, it may even be that way because I want to suggest that Paul was thinking on a much higher plane. The ownership of one human being by another is absolutely nonsensical in the Christian faith, in the Christian worldview. How could you possibly treat a brother as a slave? That is Paul's 
point in this letter. In fact, I would go further. Many agree that there are overtures of emancipation and freedom in this letter. I believe that you'll see it as we go through. But today, I want you to see how Paul spends the first part of this plea encouraging Philemon before he ever gets to his request. And I want you to consider, is this perhaps a better way to encourage obedience than how I typically choose to do it? I mean, what's your default setting? How do you typically, typically get people to do what you want them to do? Or better said, how do you typically get people to do what you think they should do? What's your default? I want to suggest this might be the best way. I'm not saying that as a boss or a parent, you don't sometimes have to give commands and expect immediate and unquestioned obedience. I get that. I, I've used the because I said so thing as well. But is it possible, especially in our relationships with one another, is it possible there is a better way to encourage godly and proper behavior? Let's look at what Paul does with Philemon. Now remember, in these verses, Paul's focus is on this relationship with Onesimus, okay? And so he bases his appeal on love, on Onesimus' conversion, on Onesimus' now usefulness, on his own heart for Onesimus, on his own desire for Onesimus, on Philemon's goodness, and then on God's purpose. Yes, I am fully aware that is seven points. Might be a record, <laughs> but we'll work our way through very quickly. Again, I, I want you to see, what I want you to see is the very warm, gracious, loving encouragement based on truth that Paul uses to prompt Philemon's action. Paul is pouring it on thick. I mean, you can't help but read that and, and, and get this idea that he's, he's pouring it on. But it's not flattery. I would suggest it's not even manipulation. But he is speaking the truth to encourage obedient, Christ-exalting action. And again, a better way uh, to encourage obedience. And remember, while addressed primarily to Philemon, this letter is being read publicly in the church. The first time that Philemon likely heard these words was in public. The church had gathered in his home. Tychicus had showed up, got a couple of letters. First one is addressed to the church of Colossus. We'll read that one first. The next one is addressed to, well, it says to Philemon. Philemon, this is kind of cool. Right? And also to, uh, to some other people in the church, as well as the church itself. So, so, so let's, let's remember that Paul perhaps addresses it to Philemon and the church to add some rather weighty uh, accountability to this appeal. But that's the way it's supposed to work. You see, as I encourage um, obedience and you encourage obedience, as we do that with each other, we're a family. Isn't there supposed to be this kind of mutual accountability where we're saying, hey, this is the way, let's walk in it together. That's the way the Christian family is supposed to work. We, 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 look at, we, we look at mutual accountability as such a negative thing. It's not supposed to be negative. It's supposed to be positive. I don't know about you, but I want to be like Christ. 
And I want, I need, not want, I need you to encourage me to do that. And whether you realize it or not, you need us to encourage you to do that as well. It's a good thing. Verses 8 and 9, Paul says, I want you to know I am appealing to you for love's sake. We remember in the Thanksgiving, Paul said, I am thankful for your love, Philemon, that brought me much joy and comfort and that, that also refreshed the hearts of the saints. Now, though I have confidence in Christ to order you to do what's proper, I'm not going to do that. See, Paul is writing a personal letter. He doesn't call himself an apostle like he does in most of his other letters. Instead, notice he, at the very first verse, he calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he says, I could appeal to you. Um, I could command you by my apostolic authority. Um, but, but, but instead, I, I'm going to, for love's sake, that love that you have demonstrated that you possess I'm going to instead encourage. I'm going to, I'm going to appeal to you. And, and who is this I that is appealing to you? Again, please notice it's not the Apostle Paul, but is such a person as I, Paul the aged, <laughs> an old man, and also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Please notice how he resorts not to power and command, but weakness and dependence. I want to encourage you. Not manipulation. This is true. I want to encourage you to do this. Remember who's asking you. I'm an old man, and I'm a prisoner. Now, scholars suggest that Paul is aged at this point, mm -hmm. right? He's old, somewhere between 50 and 56 years of age. That is what my commentary said, an old man somewhere between 50 and 56. I'm 53. I was deeply offended through the commentary away. But Paul does appeal to his age and the fact that he was also a prisoner. I want you to notice that this is the second of four times that he's going to mention his imprisonment by the time he gets to verse 13. He did it in the very first verse. Now he does it, he does it here. I want you to remember, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in jail. He's pouring it on. I'm old. Philemon, and I'm in prison. Now, for the sake of the gospel and for this old man, would you consider my request? Some also suggest that Paul is uh, referring to his own lack of freedom before he mentions another who also is experiencing a lack of freedom. So this is a masterpiece of rhetoric, but he is gracious, graciously and gently, gently encouraging godly and truthful behavior. Verse 10. He finally references the request. We miss it a little bit in the English here and our English translations. In the Greek, the person for whom he is appealing, that is Onesimus, his name does not actually appear till the very end of the verse. We have it kind of in the middle, not that way. It literally says, I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Have I mentioned to you, by the way, that I'm in prison? Uh, I, 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 whom I have, whom I have um, begotten in my imprisonment. Onesimus. And here we discover the very important truth that Onesimus has recently been saved. I have begotten him. That means he has been born again. And, and, and so, as he often does, Paul now refers to him, having led him to faith in Christ, he refers to him as my child. He, he uses a specific word. He's my little boy. 
begotten through faith in Christ. It's a term of endearment intended to soften and warm his reader, a very specific reader, toward this runaway slave. In fact, he says, I want to remind you that Philemon, he was formerly useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. A couple of thoughts about that. First, the name Onesimus was a common slave name. And the name did mean useful. Paul is using a, a play on words here. You named, they, they would often name a, a, a slave, they would give him the name Onesimus in hopes that they would be useful. Maybe if they hear it enough, maybe they'll be useful. But the second thing you need to know is that slaves in this, uh, in this area of, uh, of uh, 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 Fergia where Colossae was, it had a reputation of being, uh, uh, slaves had a reputation of being lazy and worthless workers. They, they were known, this area was known for that. Apparently Onesimus had met the reputation. He'd been like that. He'd been useless. He'd been unprofitable. We, we don't know what that means, but apparently um, before he ran away, he was not the most reliable of workers. But Paul says this. Please notice what Paul is saying. Having been redeemed, he is now useful, just as his name implies to you and to me. Stop right there a moment. Certainly, Paul is referring to some spiritual value that Onesimus now has. But is that it? He's writing to the master. Is Paul suggesting that having been redeemed, that Onesimus has been transformed from being a slothful slave to a useful, profitable one? Is it reasonable to expect that those who follow Christ have a different work ethic? Yes. We remember that Paul sent Colossians the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, along with this letter to Philemon, same time. And in Colossians chapter 3, he told slaves, workers, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Remember, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So yes, I believe being a new creation in Christ ought to affect every area of our life to include our work. Philemon had, I mean, Onesimus had formerly been a worthless slave. Because he was now a Christian, Paul expected more. If you have come to faith in Christ, no matter who you were, runaway slave, worthless worker, egregious sinner, you now have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to empower you to be different, to have a new worldview, a new work ethic, a new integrity. You ought to, as a follower of Christ, be different than who you were. Paul says in verse 12, I have sent him back to you in person. That is, I am sending my very heart. That's the word we looked at last week in verse 7 where Paul said the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by Philemon's love. Uh, here he uses that same word, heart. It's that word splankna. It speaks of bowels. It speaks of guts. It speaks of intestines. It refers to the very center of a person's emotional being. I am sending to you my very heart. I'm sending you my guts. Yeah, I'm, he, he means something to me. In fact, verse 13, I wish to keep him with me so that on your behalf, you know, since he's your slave, he might serve me in my imprisonment. Have, have I mentioned that I'm in prison, uh, you, you know, for the gospel? 
In some way, at this point, Onesimus was ministering to Paul, and Paul wanted to keep him for that purpose. Maybe he was ministering to Paul as a prisoner. Remember, if you were in prison, you needed to have somebody on the outside feeding you or you'd go hungry. Maybe he was doing that. Others suggest that Onesimus was somehow ministering the gospel alongside Paul. Because the word that Paul uses for minister there, he always, this would be the only exception, he always uses to speak of gospel ministry. We don't really know for sure, but the fact is Onesimus was now useful. He was ministering to or with Paul, and Paul wanted to keep him. I want this guy. I want him serving alongside me. But, verse 14, Paul said he would... He would not keep Onesimus without Philemon's consent because he wanted any good. It's an interesting word. That's what you're used back in, I think it's in verse 6. I want your, the knowledge of every good thing that you do to increase. He uses the same word. He wants any good thing that, that, that Philemon does uh, to not be from compulsion. In other words, he's reminding him, just like I said, Back in verse 8, I could have ordered it. You could have kept him. Philemon, you don't have any choice. It's not what he did. Whatever good thing Philemon did, Paul wanted to be of Philemon's own free will. He is, note, he is encouraging Philemon to act according to his faith. He's actually raising the stakes. You understand that? It would have been one thing to write a letter and say, I'm going to keep him. Too bad. Tough luck. It's one thing to be commanded to do something and to respond in mere obedience. It's an altogether different thing on a higher plane to do what's right as you were encouraged based on your commitment to truth. In other words, Paul didn't just want Philemon to obey and do the right thing even though he didn't want to. He wanted Philemon to obey because he wanted to for the right reasons. Do you see how important it is to encourage each other to obedience rather than command it? We all know that, right? With our children. Again, I'm not suggesting sometimes we don't command obedience from our kids. But you know what that means. You know that sometimes you told your kid to sit down and, they, and you make them sit down or sit in the corner. But you know in their heart they're standing straight up. They're obeying, but not with their heart. And that's what... Paul wanted of Philemon. Once again, we see how Paul is appealing to Philemon based on his relationship with Onesimus, trusting that Philemon's character as a Christ follower would impact his free will to do what was right. And now Paul launches into the final, most significant truth, most significant point, God's purpose and all that had happened here. For perhaps, Paul says, he was for this reason separated from you. Perhaps for this reason, Onesimus was separated from you. That's kind of interesting. You see, that's in the passive in the Greek, which means it was something that had been done to him. This separation had been done to him. Oh, I, that's kind of weird. Most agree that Philemon had some way, uh, in some way facilitated this separation. He either ran away or he didn't return when he was supposed to. Either way... Paul says, he was separated from you. This was something that was done to him. And most agree that this is the use of the divine passive. 
In other words, it was God who separated Onesimus from Philemon for a while. Why? I love this. So that you could have him back forever. Meaning that you could have him back for, forever for the rest of his life. As, as long as he's a slave, you get your slave back. Is that it? No. So that you could have him back forever as something more on into eternity. Something has happened with Onesimus that makes him more than a slave. Notice verse 16. I think the high point of the book so that you could have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, because Christianity revolutionizes relationships. No longer as a slave. We do not know ultimately if Paul was uh, calling for emancipation. But implicit in the statement is Onesimus could no longer just be regarded as a mere slave. No, he wasn't just that anymore. Having come to faith in Jesus Christ, he was much more than a slave. You see, in the end, and this is where I mean when Paul was thinking way beyond the institution of slavery, it didn't really matter how or where Onesimus got his paycheck. He was more than a slave. He was a beloved brother. Don't miss that. He's a beloved brother. You see, back in verse 1, Paul had referred to Philemon as a beloved brother. Now he gives Onesimus a slave, the same title. Philemon, beloved brother, I want you to meet Onesimus, the new Onesimus, beloved brother. As Beloved, especially to me, but how much more now to you? Because Christianity revolutionizes relationships. This highly educated Jew and former Pharisee, remember that triangle of relationship, a, a, a former Pharisee and this wealthy slave owner and runaway slave, all beloved brothers in Christ. A beloved brother in the flesh and in the Lord. Interesting statement. Lots of discussion about it. Let me simply say, in the end, it seems that now, as a beloved brother, Onesimus would prove valuable in his service to Philemon in the flesh, and he would prove valuable to Philemon in his relationship in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is great truth. This is great truth. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So do you think if we saw people, other Christians, as more than they are in society and in social classes, if we saw them as brothers and sisters, do you think that our relationship with them would change? Do, 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 you, think that it, do you think that it could? And then having changed, do you think that it might perhaps affect the way that we encourage one another in our walk with Christ. I think it can. I think it should. Let's stand for prayer.